ho, 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 ho. Yeah, I'm stuck in Santa mode, just like most everybody else. It's me, Bill Field, your host for the Comic Book Historian Podcast. And here I am at the North Pole this week with my two buddies, Alex and Jim. Alex Grand, how are you? Merry Christmas, everybody. And Jimmy, how are you, bud? Jim Thompson? I'm, I'm feeling the Christmas spirit. It's all over the place. I'm yep. going to have to clean up after this. Jim, now, when you feel the Christmas spirit, is it because you're watching a lot of Jimmy Swaggart uh, reruns? See, are you talking about, like, feeling up the Christmas spirit? Or are you just going to go for the gutter immediately? <laughs> I sin against my wife, and my cousin is Mickey Gilly, and my other cousin is... <laughs> Jerry, wait, who's the guy who married his cousin, Jerry? Jerry Lee Lewis. I'm from Jerry Virginia, Lewis. like every, my relatives, everybody. Half of Jim's family, that's cool. I had sex with another woman, and my cousin's Mickey Gilly, and my other cousin's Jerry Jeff Walker. No, Jerry, Jerry Lee Lewis. Jerry Jeff Walker? Jerry Jeff Walker. I'm in the Christmas spirit. How about you guys? What we're going to do this week is simple, folks. We're going to suspend the year that we usually do every week. And we're going to be time traveling forward, backwards, and in between. And we're going to give you each of our top five Christmas comic stories of all time. And we're going to start way back in 1952 with little Jimmy Thompson's favorite Uncle Scrooge story. Go ahead, Jim. Everybody's going to be little this episode, I guess. <laughs> Bill. Little Billy Field is your host. Little smart Alex Grand. It's Christmas, and we're flying with Santa Claus, so we're all over the map. All right, Jim, little Tommy, can you please tell us what is your first favorite Christmas comic? Yes, January 1952, Four Color 367, A Christmas for Shackletown by Carl Barks. Barks did a lot of Donald Duck and Uncle Scrooge Christmas tales, although apparently he was kind of a humbug guy that didn't like Christmas at all and took a very capitalist view of it, thought it was negative and phony and commercial, again, ultra-capitalist. But A Christmas for Shacktown is, in my mind, not the best one because I would give that to Letter to Santa because that one has those giant steam shovels fighting each other and visually that's just incredible i think artistically the the best Shocktown though is the one with the most heart i i want to read the caption on the very first page as huey louie and dewey are taking a shortcut from school through Shocktown, where all the poor people live and it says most everywhere kids look forward to christmas with google-eyed glee but in Shocktown, christmas promises to just be another bare cold hungry day as the kids are walking through town and talking about all the good stuff they're going to get for Christmas, they see this despair and, and kids hungry and kids playing with tin cans as their only toys. The story follows that they go and they meet Daisy Duck and they tell her about it. And she says, I'm going to get my ladies auxiliary to do something. And then they go and they talk to Donald about it. And it's an interesting storyline in that the kids instantly get it and they want to give their money and, and their time and all their efforts to helping these kids in Shacktown. And Daisy and the women in the story want to do it. But the adult males are just, I know they're ducks, but they act like dicks. Ha ah. ha quack. 
Donald Dick. That sounds like a whole other comic book. Donald Dick. Well, actually, it's the same comic most of the time. Donald does everything wrong in this. The kids raise money by chopping wood or cleaning snow out of the sidewalks. Daisy actually goes and she sells her fur tatting or something. But Donald goes and tries to trick the money out of Uncle Scrooge. And he goes through several other ways. None of them are honest. He ends up leaving his Donald Duck hat out and people throwing a dollar coins into it. He's the one that doesn't do it the right way throughout. At the end of the story, what's really amazing about it is they haven't raised the money yet to buy what the kids want, which is a toy train. And Uncle Scrooge won't do it because he thinks that there's nothing more useless than a toy train. But then he puts his final dime up on his pile of treasures of his cash. It's too much weight. All of the money falls through a sinkhole, basically, into like this underground cave, and he's penniless, desperate to get the money back. And the only way to get it is through a small cave that they run this toy train through. And so money comes back as a toy train carload per time. So it's going to take a long time to recover all the funds. He's so excited about it that he promises Huey, Louie, and Dewey that whatever comes back cash on the first train return, he will give to the kids. And it's a stack of $100,000 bills. So the kids, instead of getting a turkey in one toy train set, they have $100,000 of toys and joy and everything. So it ends with that incredibly capitalistic money solved your problems message. But it's lovely in terms of what Huey, Louie, and Dewey and everybody that's a decent person, how they treat Christmas. So they went from tin cans to $100,000 worth of toys. That's a pretty good upgrade. Yeah, they're all going to become Republicans and, and, and be very productive. Want a tax break. <laughs> yeah, Donald Trump duck. Now, wait a minute. Is it Donald Duck or Donald Trump? Did I say Do- Donald Duck or Donald Trump? Donald T. It doesn't duck. matter. It's the same guy. Well, Jim, I don't know if you realize this, but way back in Four Color Volume 2, number 178 in 1947, was the very first Uncle Scrooge story. It was supposed to be his only appearance, but it went over so well, he became kind of the head of the Donald Duck comic enterprise and basically became one of the most popular ducks of all. And although he wasn't animated until, I believe... 1991, when DuckTales first came out, this was his very first story, and he was actually evil in the first Scrooge McDuck story. He was more like Flintheart Glomgold, who, of course, is Scrooge's evil nemesis. Here I have a quote. Here I sit in this big lonely dump, waiting for Christmas to pass. Bah! That silly season when everybody loves everybody else. A curse on it. Me... I'm different. Everybody hates me, and I hate everybody. Now, that doesn't sound like this Uncle Scrooge we have come to love, does it? No. What's up with that? And Christmas on Bear Mountain is where he basically puts Donald through his paces, trying to see whether he is worthy of his Christmas present by a bunch of trial and error things. And it's a great story. It's Carl Barks, and it actually looks and acts nothing like Uncle Scrooge in later comics. It's one of my favorite Christmas comic stories. Guys, you guys ever read this? No, but I'd like to. I was always a fan of DuckTales, so I think I'd like that. This is actually the one that they credit as his very first story. He was actually more like Scrooge before he has his born-again moment, as it were, with the three ghosts. 
Now, there should be a distinction made between the, his name. There's Scrooge McDuck, and then there's Ebenezer Scrooge. And so, technically, the Ebenezer Scrooge character from Christmas Carol is different from Scrooge McDuck. Wouldn't you guys say? Oh, absolutely. He, was he wasn't Scottish either. No. No, he was British. Right. Scrooge McDuck is Scottish. Yes, exactly. He's not Mick Scrooge, he's Scrooge. Brother Bearback Bill. Bearback. <laughs> How do you not slap that down? <laughs> uh, you see what I have to deal with, folks? Every year it's the same thing. So Scrooge McDuck is now out of the way. We can now move on to bigger and better things. So, Alex, what is your first comic book choice? Well, in the spirit of Ebenezer Scrooge, I'm going to start off by saying Bah Humbug, just to comic books in general, and make my first Christmas story from a comic strip of Milton Kniff's Tearing the Pirates, December 1940. It was a great Tearing the Pirates Sunday by Milton Kniff that was made especially for Christmas. A couple of the temporary characters in the background see Terry sleeping in China on Christmas, so the old man goes out finds some knickknacks and a plant outside, and assembles them into a mini Christmas tree, and they present it to Terry when he wakes up. And although it's a real simple and cute idea of Christmas cheer and goodwill from very meager means, what's really impressive about it is there was no dialogue in the panels. It was just art, shadow, and choreographic talent by Milton Kniff, which moves the story along in a really beautiful, smooth way. And that art form that Milton Kniff really pioneered with, of course, help from his friend Noel Sickles, who kind of nudged him into the right direction, is just shown so well in this Christmas Sunday. I posted it in the group, and I've bumped it up again this year. It's really one of my all-time favorite Sunday panels uh, because it does capture the Christmas spirit, but also is just a great example of how a comic artist doesn't need dialogue or word balloons to push a story along and that skill kind of gets forgotten during the silver age there's so many dialogue balloons covering half the panels it takes forever to get through a page sometimes whereas guys like frank miller and sin city and daredevil they're pushing stories along wonderfully with just few the fewest words possible and i think seeing that milton kniff did that in 1940 years before everybody else is a nice testament to both christmas and to the comic strip as an art form I'm really impressed with that, Alex. <laughs> I don't quite know what to say. Jimmy? <laughs> I mean, Tommy? I think it's a great choice. Jim, what's your next one? My next one, Teen Titans, number 13, 1967, A Swingin' Christmas Carol. People may remember that great Nick Hardy cover of a Christmas tree made out of junk with the uh, Titans interspersed on the tree almost as ornaments thrown against it. It's a Christmas Carol adaptation. This is Cardi in some ways doing his best Will Eisner impersonation, especially in this third page has a junkyard bus on a snow cliff that looks uh, very much like something right out of Eisner. And it has a McScrounge and a Tiny Tom, so the names are changed, but basically it's the same story where McScrounge, though, is sort of involved in a criminal enterprise that has to do with getting around international duties. <laughs> this is so crazy. What I love about so 
Silver Age comics, the criminals in it have a ray where they can turn high-priced items into junk, bring it into the U.S., and avoid any kind of duty charges, and then hit the ray again, and it turns into super expensive stuff that they can then sell and get out of having to pay the taxes on it. It's one of the great tax scheme Christmas comics of all time, I think. Scrooge has the junkyard where the junk comes. He's sort of the fence for this, and Tiny Tom's dad works there. Tiny Tom figures out what's going on and writes a letter to the Titans for help. So the Titans come, are defeated, then they come back. They try to turn Scrooge around into being a good person by posing as the ghost of Christmas past, present, and future. At the end of it, Scrooge sees his way to give up on his criminal partners, and he makes a brand new wheelchair out of the junk wheelchair that Tiny Tom was in before that. So that's it. But mainly the reason that I love it, besides the fact that it again has that Scrooge notion of becoming a better person, and of course Tiny Tim or Tiny Tom, but what I really love about it is, to be honest, Wonder Girl in this Christmas suit. She's flying around in this short miniskirt Santa outfit, and as a kid in 1967, even though I was seven, I thought it was pretty hot. And how old is she, Jim? Older than I was at the time, so it's okay. But she's under 18, right? Yes, yeah, she's under 18. And how old are you now? Roy Moore, take note. <laughs> and- okay, all right, so when Dan DiCarlo does Archie covers, I will buy them. I know what you're saying, and this is a funny thing, because there's that whole question of, are we sexualizing Riverdale teenagers on that show too much? Then it brings in all these funny questions. I don't think we are because it's supposed to give you the perspective of being another student in the school. So I think it's fine. I have a Mary Marvel basement in my house, so I don't know. <laughs> God, way too much information, folks. And we'll later give Jim's address to the authorities. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't even have a basement. As far as we know, folks, as far as we know. So what's your next one, Billy Boy? My next one goes back a little in time because I wanted to try to out Scrooge McDuck. Jim, of course, I failed to do that as usual. Mine is the 1942 Walt Kelly Santa Claus comic story, The Little Fir Tree, which was basically the fir tree was a story by, oh, now it's... Totally leaves me. Who wait? Who was that guy that did Jerry Lee Lewis? Wasn't it Jackie Jeff Jones or Jerry Jeff Walker? Is it Redneck Cousin? I thought it was Redneck Cousin or something like that. Redneck mother, mother who has raised a son so well. <laughs> the Little Fir Tree by Hans Christian Andersen was very much like his Little Match Girl. You know, all his stories they were like sad. They weren't like uplifting fairy tales. And this is no different. The little fir tree basically gives his life to this family so they can set it ablaze for Christmas Day. And he's the reason why we all have Christmas trees now, or so the story goes. But it's told with the beautiful artwork of Walt Kelly. And the fact that it came out in 1942 means that the end of the story has Santa trying to sell victory bonds. So you see Santa warming himself by the dying, burning little fir tree that's given himself up for Christmas. And this is a perfect analogy to people giving money when they barely had it for World War II with victory stamps and the like and bonds and buy bonds and all that stuff. So I thought it was really funny 
because they turn it into an allegory of how you can help the war effort. I like that. And it's patriotic and full of good Christmas cheer. Well done, Bill. Oh, oh, he comes back after he dies and says, see, I gave my life for you. So it's also kind of a Jesus Christ analogy in a strange way. So I like that. So there's a little bit of Furberger and then a little bit of Christmas patriotism and then a little bit of Christianity, too, you're saying. Furberger. Yes, yes, uh, Alex. Alex, and that brings us to you again. What's your second story? You read my mind. My next one is Batman 9, 1942. I'm going to go back to saying Merry Christmas to comic books again. I've come out of my grouchy phase, but I'm still maintaining a little bit of a Grinch type of mentality. Batman 9 is credited to Bill Finger and Bob Kane. I think it was actually Bob Kane doing the art on that one. Batman in the story clears a little boy's father of a wrongful arrest for murder, and he gives the boy back his disappeared father for Christmas. So it was a real Christmas miracle to this kid. But some of the bad guys in the story had a Santa Claus that was kind of a lookout for the bad guys. So he was a real dirtbag Santa. I don't know if you guys like the concept of a dirtbag Santa. I love it. What's funny is when Batman catches him and threatens him with physical violence and arrest, Batman forces the Santa threatening with physical harm to bring good cheer to a bunch of jaded orphans. And the bad Santa starts to feel reformed from this, like something out of that Billy Bob Thornton film, Bad Santa. To me, it's an early example of a dirtbag Santa in comic books, which I like. I have a soft spot for the dirtbag Santa Clauses. It seems like it's truly a Bob Kane art, not necessarily ghosted, but that's just what it seems like to me. The third thing is I like that it's really kind of an early example of the fascist Batman that we've come to celebrate with Frank Miller's Dark Knight Returns, where Batman forces this Santa to reform. And I thought that that was an interesting little foreshadowing of that quality of Batman, that deep down there's a bit of a fascism in him, and some of us readers can't help but like that. Wow, that makes me want to go pick up that issue right now, because I love a good Christmas tale with a man and his ward servant. There is a long history of scumbag Santas in comics in the Christmas stories, and I love Christmas stories. And let's just not forget Ebenezer Batson, the evil uncle to Billy Batson, who was just like Scrooge, except he really was evil, and I think he winds up getting dropped off a bridge by Captain Marvel, if I'm not mistaken. I'll check, Bill. Yeah, I know you will. <laughs> that leads us right back to little Tommy Jimmy Thompson. <laughs> um, I wanted to backtrack just for a minute because it has bearing on this. In the 70s, the Christmas comics, the anthologies for both DC and for Marvel were done in giant size editions. And I just want to say what a pleasure it was to read. For example, that Teen Titans tale was in a limited collector's edition in 1974 that has tales of Captain Marvel, Batman, Angel and the Ape, and that Nick Carty story, but in giant size format. It was one of those dollar giant Yeah, treasures. one of those dollar giant. Those are a joy to read in terms of just looking at the art in giant size format. Which brings me to my next story, which is Marvel did it too. Um, they had their giant superhero holiday grab bags in 1974, 75, and 76. And they would do these mixes of actual Christmas stories 
that they had done, which aren't that many. So they were fairly recent reprints because Stan Lee didn't do a lot of Christmas stories during the Silver Age, during the 60s. In fact, during his whole time there at Marvel. But what they would do is they would do these more recent Christmas stories and then combine them with stories that seemed to resonate a certain goodwill or feeling that they prescribe to Christmas, such as Daredevil 7, that fantastic Submariner one where Daredevil is almost Christ-like in his willingness to sacrifice for himself. But in the, the first one, which that also appears in, there is a reprint of Marvel Team-Up number one, which is one of my favorite Christmas stories of all time by Rory Thomas and Ross Andrew. It's called a Have Yourself a Sandman Little Christmas. And it starts out on the beach where Peter Parker has been sent to photograph the polar bear clan stepping into the December ocean. And Sandman pops up. Spider-Man has a fight with Sandman on the beach. Sandman gets away. And Spider-Man says, well, Sandman's not really one of my enemies. Tackled him once a long time ago, which is factually not true. He had many encounters with Sandman, even under just Deadco. But anyway, he goes to the Fantastic Four to the Baxter building. The only one home is a really brooding, grouchy, petulant Johnny Storm. And the two of them get into the bathtub Fantastic car because that's the only one left in the place. And they go looking for Sandman because they both encountered him early under the Brooklyn bridge so they think maybe he's headed back there for some reason i should say that when they were fighting on the beach spider-man mentioned it was christmas eve and that's when sandman said oops i gotta go and basically turned into the beach and left it turns out that they encounter sandman again near looks like a bad part of town he beats them both and ties them up, throws them in the river, but such that they're able to get away. They retrack him. They find out that he says, not now, guys, please. He's going to go visit his sick, ailing mother. Spider-Man happens to have a gift that he was going to give to Gwen Stacy. He gives it to Sandman instead and says, here, you can't go in empty-handed. He and Johnny wait outside to arrest Sandman after they give him a few minutes to visit with his mom they go up and they look and of course he has gone down the drain there's only a few sands and they both say we don't really care Johnny writes in flames peace on earth goodwill to man and says tonight I just feel good the thing that's important about this is besides the messages Johnny and Peter act like total assholes to each other through the entire thing they're arguing they're bickering and they really haven't been established as friends in the marvel mythos at this point yeah i like that i like that too this is actually a pretty historic comic because this sets up that notion that they actually are going to be friends in the comic universe so i love it for that i also love it for this is one of the first times where it sets it up for sandman to be a villain, but not to be Dr. Octopus, to not be Green Goblin. He's got a mom. We find out his real name is William Baker, not Flint Marco. We find out about his backstory just a little tiny bit, and he's appreciative of who Spider-Man and the Torch is. Although he takes advantage of him and cruises, but... I think it's the moment where he starts to not be the level of villain that some of the others are, and he eventually becomes what? He becomes a, a member of the Avengers. Yeah, I like that, too. So that's the first issue of Marvel Team-Up in 1972, Jim? 
the very first issue. And I have to say, this is a time when, boy, those Marvel books that haven't done any Christmas stories at all really start to hammer them out. There's a Nick Fury, Twas the Night Before Christmas by Frank Springer and Johnny Craig inking. That's pretty beautiful, too. And, of course, also one of my favorites was the Luke Cage. I think it was number six where he fought uh, Jingle Bombs by Steve Englehart. And he fights three different villains that turn out to be the same guy. They are basically villains in the guise of Ghost of Christmas Past, Present, and Future. He's going to nuke the city, and Cage stops him. I mean, what I love about that is Luke Cage gets to say, Sweet Christmas, and it's not embarrassing. (laughs) That's true. Yeah, that was kind of a surreal issue, that Luke Cage one. I remember reading that. That's a great phase of the Luke Cage comics. There's just that 70s Luke Cage. I love that. There's almost like a little bit of a Ralph Bakshi type twist in some of this. And it feels almost like a little bit of that underground comic vibe. But it's Marvel. It's a superhero. It's just kind of an anti-hero. But it's special. Those are special issues. I love those. Billy Graham inks on George Tosca just turns it into an entirely different thing. I love those. Totally. But this is 72 to 74 right in this period. This is me at 12 to 14. And I just love those Christmas stories during that time. Why do you guys think Stan didn't write Christmas stories during the 60s? Well, he is Jewish. He's Hebrew. So, okay. I would say that might have a lot to do with it. But I will say Milton Kniff was Jewish too, and he made great Christmas Sundays. Simon and Kirby, virtually every one of their strips had a good Christmas tale in it. Al Kaplan's really Al Kaplan. He was also Jewish, and he did some great stuff in Little Abner for the holidays. Maybe Stan Lee hates Christmas. Maybe Stan Scrooge. (laughs) Maybe his real name is Scrooge Lee Lieber. Maybe Stan Lee murders Christmas. Hey, true believers. I Honestly, if I had to guess, to be serious for a moment, I think it's to distinguish Marvel from DC because DC really, really took advantage of those Christmas stories. From the Golden Age straight through the Silver, there was always a lot of Christmas in DC. You know, he would have like a Christmas party. There would be a little tiny panel, but he didn't make Christmas-themed ones. I don't think he did a lot of holiday stuff at all. You had Sheldon Mayer, who was also Jewish, needless to say. He did a lot of the Rudolph and Santa Claus comics for DC. You're absolutely right. It was a big moneymaker for DC, I believe, Jim. I think Marvel just would not do it. And then when Stan Lee stopped doing the principal writing, they brought it in. They were not as whimsical as the DC stuff. Bill, what's your next comic, bro? I'm glad you asked, Alex. My next comic would be Lobo's Paramilitary Christmas Special. That's from 1991, but here I want to play just a little bit of something for you. Don't I recognize you from someplace? Yes! I'm the Easter Bunny! Here's a soundbite from a fan-made movie in 2002 by the same name. But it's an irreverent tale where Lobo winds up shooting both Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny, and it's hapless Christmas mayhem for everybody and most of our members out there will probably remember this tale. It was written by Alan Moore one of my favorite DC Christmas comics of all time although it's not one you can especially tell the kiddies if you know what I mean Have you read this Jim? No I don't think I have but I hate Lobo. I hate Lobo passionately. Lobo hater. How about you Alex? Have you read it? 
I've never been a big Lobo fan. I remember when I was a kid and I would see those Lobo magazines and he'd be all buff and then he'd kind of punch us through a dude's neck, decapitating someone. I was an 11 year old in 1988. I think it was a wow, that's some hardcore comic. It almost gave me like a dirty feeling. You know what I mean? And kids shouldn't have that. Oh, come on. I think kids want to feel dirty. Wait, what? So that brings us to your next one, Alex. What's yours? Well, my next one is Action Comics 105, 1947. It's by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, but technically, similar to Bob Kane, Joe Schuster had Ghost Artist also, and they had their own shop, Siegel and Schuster, just like Bob Kane did. And so, although it says Joe Schuster, it was actually John Sakella who was the artist for that story but it's a great story this wealthy evil rich man rasper jasper travels to the north pole and poisons santa claus and his reindeer with fat pills that make him fat and unable to travel or fit into a chimney so superman finds santa and works him over like meat tenderizer slamming his meat left and right scaring him massaging exercising him until he's lost enough weight to fit into chimneys. Then Superman carries Santa around the world house to house to give away his gifts. In the meantime, they save the rich, evil Rasper Jasper, which then transforms him into a heart of gold. What I think is funny is just the whole idea of fatness is treated completely differently in the 1940s than it is now. What's funny is how Superman just pounds the fat out of Santa Claus Superman, can you stop it, please? It's also kind of interesting is there is a Merry Christmas from Jerry and Joe at the end of the story. And at this point, this was, I think, probably right before Jerry and Joe sued DC for ownership of Superman. Because at this point, DC has no fear to publish who is responsible for creating Superman and giving that Christmas message personally from Jerry and Joe rather than from the DC team. So I thought that that was also a little interesting note in that Christmas story. So yeah, the fat smashing and the credit to Jerry and Joe, as well as the concept of Schuster having ghost artists just like Bob Kane did. That's all interesting to me. That's the story you've told that I want to go and read that as soon as we're done here. And I've never read that story. Yeah, it's a fun one. I like it. The art, you can tell it's not exactly Schuster. The dialogue is kind of funny, too, though, by Siegel, because Superman even says something along the lines of tenderizing his meat, and then Santa saying, my God, I'm not going to have any skin left back there. And it's just such a funny, almost prison rape scene type of sequence. I know Bill's really into those kind of scenes. I'm really not, but thanks again for making everybody think I am. Thank you. Thank you, Alex. That's your special Christmas gift to me, I know. (laughs) You know, that's really interesting, because in that Christmas with the Superheroes Dollar Limited Collector's Edition I was talking about, there's a Superman tale called Christmas Town USA that's also 1947. It's a total rarity in that it was a toy giveaway Superman that I don't think ever been reprinted except for that. And that's included in there. It's it's the same year. I wonder if that's actually Schuster. It doesn't look like it. That's a beautiful story, too. You should check it out. Nice. Well, in both those stories, I'm familiar with both. And I have to say, their whimsy is almost on a Captain Marvel level, not a Superman level, which Superman stories were not as whimsical and not as 
fairy tale like in quality as the Captain Marvel ones were back in those days. So it's almost like they suspended the normal Superman style of story for Christmas every year during this period. Well, I mean, Mort Weisinger was a bit of a sociopath, too. And I think that maybe he put a pause to that during the Christmas time. I don't know. Yeah, it could be. Could well be. But I'm with you on this. I am going to have to go back and read that story, especially uh, where he almost rips the skin off Santa. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) That brings us back to Jimmy, Tommy. Tommy, Jimmy. There is something about Santa being killed, like that Justice League cover that Nick Carty did where Santa Claus is laying face down in the street with blood coming out. And you get that in a lot of stories that are titled like Who Killed Santa Claus? Or he's being shot. Either he's being hurt by villains or he is the villain. Those are the two super common Santa Claus stories in superhero comics. And this one that I'm going to do next, 1990, Wanted Santa Claus, Dead or Alive, a short story from DC Superstar Holiday Special, DC Special Series number 21. And who is the artist in this? Frank Miller's very first Batman. It's Frank Miller doing Neil Adams. In fact, I thought one of the panels was Neil Adams when I looked at it once. The story itself is about a criminal who, in order to set up, do an inside job on a department store, he takes a job as Santa, gets into the role, and realizes he can't do it. He likes his boss. He likes the people. He wants to go straight. He tells his fellow gang members about this, and they shoot him. Batman helps him out, is trying to track him down. He's kidnapped. Batman's looking for him, can't find him, and then someone has stolen the star over the manger scene, and so the light from the moon shines in and exposes for Batman the criminals and the the wounded Santa, and he swoops in and throws miniature Christmas trees at everybody, knocks them all out. The wounded Santa and Batman leave the scene. It's actually a very nice story. It's the first one where instead of a good-natured, good people doing good things, there's a bit of mysticism in this one, unlike the other ones that I have given, which is not a surprise because Frank Miller is coming off of Daredevil and always interjected a little bit of that level of stuff into it as compared to earlier, more secular comic Christmas stories. That makes me want to go read it. It's a beautifully drawn story. I really like it. Isn't it in that hardbound Frank Miller Batman book? Yeah, it is. Okay, I have read it. It is wonderful. And it kind of came out of nowhere because that was during his Daredevil days, wasn't it? It was his very first work at DC. Denny O'Neill wrote it. It was 1980. It's a fantastic issue. It has a uh, Legion of Superheroes. Five of the stories are based around the star that shines on the wise men. So it's got a Jonah Hex story where Jonah Hex is reminiscing about his dad tricking him to eating his pet raccoon because it's Michael Fleischer. So that's what he would think is a Christmas story. Legion of Superheroes and a Sergeant Rock story and a House of Mystery story. So it has all these different genres, Western and war and science fiction. And Batman is the superhero story in it. It's a really nice issue altogether. I enjoyed it a lot. On that note, I'm going to go to my next choice. I don't know if either one of you is familiar with Daniel Klaus. Ghost World was based on one of his graphic novels. He also did a comic book for years called 8-Ball. And in issue number 14, 1994, 
he had an especially creepy Santa story, and that would be the sensual Santa. Santa in a pink halter top wearing surf pants, and he carried a backpack full of lotion, and he showed up at uh, everybody's door whether they wanted a massage or not. Ha, that's my kind of Santa right there. I'm going to read just a tad bit of it because it's so funny. Hello, people. I'm the sensual Santa. Why wait for the holiday? The spirit of giving sensuality is a season all year round. Come and join me on my rounds. Maybe we can both learn something. Remember, children are little people. It just gets creepier from there. It's, It's funny. His art style almost looks more like Fabulous Fury Freak Brothers in this. It's just really gross. The last panel shows him giving a grandma a bubble bath, and she looks horrified. And he says, be a sensual Santa. It's contagious. I'm going to have to probably go get a shot after we wrap up here today. Because of all the contagiousness? Because of all the contagiousness and all the sensuality oozing from sensual Santa. Oh, wow. Big Al, what's your next one? I love easy comics. I love how nasty they get. Vault of Horror 35, 1954, has a beautiful Johnny Craig cover with a husband about to cut his wife's head off with an axe. As she sees her gift under the tree, she's screaming because she sees a coffin with her name on it. And what a Christmas gift that turned out to be. There are a couple Christmas scripts inside by Johnny Craig which are really clever. The first one I really like because of the Johnny Craig art, which is my favorite of the artists for those EC comics, was when this wife just killed her husband. On the radio, there's a man dressed as Santa Claus, another dirtbag Santa reference, going around the neighborhood killing women. So she wants to get rid of the husband's body, but she can't because when she looks out her window, she sees the Santa Claus murderer outside her door. She can't call the cops either because then they'll find her husband's body. So it's this weird Christmas rock and a hard place. Her daughter, who's completely naive to everything, believes in Christmas miracles, lets the Santa Claus murderer in because she thought he's a real Santa. And then the narrator of the story, which starts off looking like Santa Claus, takes off his mask and it's the vault keeper. And he reveals his classic disfigured face, the green cowl. And as he's doing that, we know that that Santa killer is probably in that house murdering the mom and her child. So everyone's dead in that house. And I thought that's just a nice backfire of the Christmas miracle. Another Johnny Craig script in that same book is done by Graham Ingalls, who has some really ominously malignant artwork. (laughs) But it contrasts well with the Christmas miracle that occurs where this blind boy can now see. And what happens, the reason why he can see and he wakes up, it's a Christmas miracle, is because his toy bear pulled the eyes out of his stepfather's face into his own eye sockets. And his teddy bear, who doesn't have eyes, is smiling in the background. The reason why this is such a weird story is because stepdad was beating his stepson his mom had just died from overwork it was a completely horrible situation and then boom the christmas miracle happens and it's such a dark dirty christmas miracle that not only do i like dirtbag santas i like dirty christmas miracles i think i need to take a shower again (laughs) that makes me feel like we're in halloween territory not so much in uh, christmas territory but you know what is Halloween but evil people's Christmas? So, And that brings us back to 
Jimmy Tommy Thompson. Jim, what is your fifth and final Christmas comic this year? Before I do my fifth one, I just want to add something because you said Creepy and Eerie and then Alex did an EC. So I just want to point out just how good some of the Warren Christmas tales were as well. Bernie Wrightson did ones. Rich Corbin did ones. There's a lot of those. Creepy would do all Christmas issues in the late 60s that were pretty fantastic. Ken Kelly would do some covers that were amazing with a worse than scumbag Santa that was brutally killing children. I wanted to mention my favorite sort of Christmas story for that, which is an Alex Toth story called Daddy and the Pie by Bill Dubay and by Toth. It was in 1975, Eerie 64. It's only a Christmas tale in that the daddy and the kid find the alien who they name Pi during Christmas time. They bring him into the house. It's a precursor to E.T. in a lot of ways. He has magic healing powers, but it's also, of course, because of that, it's a Christ story as well. And he heals people, but the town beats him up. They think he's spooky. They take the father away, and he goes and basically basically slaughters the town and then dies. And the dad wakes up from his coma and says, where's Pi? And then he cries. And it has a very Christmas vibe to it. And it's a beautiful, beautifully drawn story by Alex Toth. But that's not my Christmas story. When I was going through and I reread all of these for today's podcast, I was doing great. And then I got to this last selection, which is 1997. And it's Starman number 27. And I'm hopefully I won't do the same thing that I did when I was reading it. It's, it's James Robinson and it's Tony Harris. It's just a beautiful, beautiful story. What it's about is the O'Dares are having everybody over for Christmas. And Jack Knight is, is invited and his dad is invited and the blue alien Starman is invited. And Shade stops by and gives them a first edition Dickens Christmas Carol. But everybody's waiting on Jack. What's happened with Jack is he saw a homeless Santa sitting on his steps crying and he asked what's wrong, and I guess the guy had picked up a Santa job. They had thrown his clothes away because they were homeless clothes, and so he was walking around the streets in his Santa costume, but he was crying because he had lost this locket that had a picture of his family in it. And he explains to Jack he had lost his family, his wife and child had died, he began drinking a lot, all his possessions burned up in a house fire, and so the only, all the photographs, all evidence of them except for this locket and some bad guys had taken it that evening and it was all he had left of his family and Starman said, well, let's go find it. They hunt down these creepy guys. They take it back. But meanwhile, Jack has spent all his money. Everybody that he's trying to track down these guys, he ends up giving them money to help them. So at the end, he turns to the guy who turns out to be a vet, by the way. He says, well, Pete, he says, OK, uh, good luck. I'm off. And then I wish I could give you some money, but I don't have any. And then he says goodbye to him. And then it goes to the O'Dares, which we kept going back to with little moments of character on them that were all lovely. Jack rings the bell and he's got Santa with him and he says this is my friend Pete and they bring him in and they start talking about which wars they were in and Santa starts to cry. The 
senior O'Dare takes him by his arm and he says, no tears tonight, my friend Pete. I just love this story so much. And Robinson during that Starman run was really, really on top of his game, like never before or since. It's a great series, but that's maybe my favorite Christmas story of all time. It just chokes me up. I have tears in my eyes right now. Wow. Are you serious? You can mock it or you could go screw yourself. This is what a good Christmas story does. Jim, are those tears or is that a cold sweat? It's a Christmas cold sweat. Mock me if you want. In every single one of these stories, it's about unexpected human kindness. And that's what I really look for at Christmas. It's what I look for in a Christmas story. So, Bill, it would be hypocritical of me to say that and then tell you to screw off. I I love you, Bill. I love you too, Jim. Merry Christmas to you, buddy. And that brings me to my final Christmas story. And that would be dun, 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 Brave and the Bold, number 148. And that's a Batman and Plastic Man tale. Yes! I love called, this one. Called the, the Night the Mob Stole Christmas. It's a really funny book because Batman shows up in his kind of Corvette-looking Batmobile from the late 70s. One of my favorite Batmobiles next to the one from the Batman TV series. Is this a late 1970s issue? Yes. The artwork is fantastic. It's just a great story. I remember it's from 1978, actually. I was a kid. I was a teenager. This is before they made a big deal out of Plastic Man formerly being a criminal himself and E.L. O'Brien. Now that's all you see whenever he gets together with Batman, especially the animated tales. In the animated versions, Batman is the one who set Eel O'Brien up to become Plastic Man and then set him on the path to be a good citizen and a superhero as opposed to a super criminal, which he certainly could have done with the powers Plastic Man has. Batman acts completely un-Batman-like. There's a line in here that I want to get to that is just absolutely hilarious. Plastic Man finds the name of a trucking company that will lead them to the mobsters that are trying to steal Christmas, essentially. And this is what Batman says. Plastic Man, you did it again. Let's start highballing ourselves for the Sunshine State. I'm sorry, that doesn't sound like any Batman I grew up with. Highballing it to the Sunshine State. Maybe Batman has fond memories of Christmas that takes him back before his parents were brutally murdered in front of him by Alfred. I mean, no, 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 by Joe Chill. (laughs) And it was written by Bob Haney and the artist Joe Statton and Jim Aparo. Yeah, that's like when someone flies to Florida for the summer but then hangs out in the Northeast for work or their job. That's kind of a snowbird jewish italian thing isn't it kind of like an east coast thing when i lived out there i know a lot of dudes of different types that would go down to florida for winter weekends and things like that what i love about it is it shows sweating mobsters at the end of it giving out christmas candy and toys to boys and girls before they put them in jail i guess but that's one of my favorite batman brave and the bold christmas stories and i love the fact that He and Plastic Man seem to have so much fun together, like they don't mind going on road trips and just ripping it up in Florida. So that takes us to you, Alex. What's your final Christmas story of the year? 
My final Christmas story comes from Little Annie Fanny, December 1963. This story was by Bill Elder, Harvey Kurtzman, and Russ Heath with some editorial oversight by Hugh Hefner. The story is called Yuletide One-Upsmanship. When Huck Buston and Benton Bat Barton are at a Christmas party, which rivals a Roman orgy, the two characters compete for Annie's affection, and at the end of the story, there's a large full-page splash, which I just love, of all the previously used characters from the comic, including Sugar Daddy Big Bucks, who's Annie's adopted father, who is actually a homage to Little Orphan Annie's uh, Daddy Warbucks character, and Annie is in full curves, wrapped up in a Christmas stocking, and this page is great because it's the only time we see the creative team behind the curtains. We see all four of the dudes I mentioned, Heath, Elder, Kurtzman, and Hefner, all kind of lining up to go to the Christmas party on the bottom of the page. And that's the reason why I love it, because we see those dudes that are creating this, all four of them, including their godfather, who is Hugh Hefner. And to me, it's a celebration that Harvey Kurtzman found a niche after he left Mad Magazine in the early 50s and was replaced by Al Feldstein. He struggled with Humbug Magazine and Help Magazine with Warren, which didn't do as well financially, but he had this bread and butter comic which he did with will elder for hugh hefner and playboy and it gave him sustenance and money and prosperity all through to the late 1980s i think that that's a great success story even though he walked away from mad magazine and a lot of money he lived life on his own terms and that's why i like reading little annie fanny and i love that christmas story I have to say, as someone who met Harvey on three different occasions, Harvey was the nicest guy in the world. He was so sweet as a man and a creator. And, you know, he died far too soon as far as I'm concerned. He actually told me once that he really did love Christmas, although he was very Hebrew. He always enjoyed doing Christmas-themed stories. That's probably why he put so much into that one, Alex. A reason why he's probably one of the best-loved creators in comics. I'd say that he's one of my favorites. He's easily one of my top five writer-artists of all time. And that brings us to our holiday edition of the weekly, bi-weekly, daily, whatever you want to call it. It's what we like to call our rant. And this week, since we started with Jim, every time this week, we'll start the rants with Alex. Alex? Well, my rant this week is about Julia Schwartz. I think that... As comic book fans and historians and enthusiasts, we should never forget that Julius Schwartz is the heart and soul of the Silver Age. It was him bringing science fiction into the 50s DC comics that created the Barry Allen Flash character. And that story was done with Infantino and written by Robert Kaniger under the creative pioneering push of Julius Schwartz created that prototypical quote-unquote Silver Age story that DC and Marvel just kind of copies this bizarre science fiction event creating superheroes, and both companies created a bunch of heroes that are still currently used today. Although we say, oh yeah, Jack Kirby's the heart and soul of the Silver Age, or Stan Lee's the heart and soul of the Silver Age. No, it really just comes down to Julius Schwartz and what he did with that Flash comic and a lot of comics after 
and his contributions to, to DC Comics all through, what, to like 1986 or so. The man was a genius. He brought his pulp magazine love of uh, Hugo Gernsback's uh, amazing stories, science fiction pulp magazine, and brings that enthusiasm from Gernsback into his comics, and that creates a lot of superhero characters that we all follow now. So that's my rant is a reminder that Julius Schwartz is a nidus for a lot of great comic storytelling. That's very succinct, Alex. Thank you for that. Gosh, I'm really almost out of Kleenex here. (laughs) Tommy Jim, God bless us everyone with your rant of the week. I don't have a rant. I have an appreciation, a thank you to both of you guys, because what I'm doing this year for Christmas for my entire family is I am giving each of them a comic or a graphic novel of some kind, but I'm giving it to two members of the family in each case, ones who don't necessarily know each other that well. And with the idea that they each have to read it and then they have to talk about that particular comic with each other. So, for example, I'm giving two members of the family the two volumes of the Mark Russell Flintstones. These would be people that wake up in the mornings and worry about the state of affairs of the world and are finding it very hard to find anything funny. And I think that Flintstones series does a great job of putting things in perspective. Others, I'm giving a certain avant-garde books and things that I enjoy, certain foreign books, but in each case, pairing them with somebody else so that they talk it over with each other. And that's inspired by the fun and the goodwill that I have had over the last several months with both of you guys in terms of talking about stuff instead of reading being a solitary sport. So Merry Christmas to both of you. Hey, Merry Christmas, Jim. Thank you. I have to say for the record, I bought both of you a Christmas present. I haven't mailed either one, but they're both books I think you'll like, and they're both comic-related. I'm sure you're shocked at that. I have to say, before I rant, and I do have a rant this week, I hate to say, because I am in the Christmas spirit, but you'll understand in a second. I have to say, without a doubt, the last three months that we've been doing this podcast have been fun. They've been fantastic. And it's basically uh, made me feel like I have two new members of my family. You guys are fantastic. You're great guys to be around. And I hope we do this for many years to come. And I raise a purple haze to you both, my friends. And here's to a wonderful Christmas for you both. And a happy, happy new year for you, uh, us, and the podcast. So without further ado, now I'll go on to my rant, which is I am fed up with Holly Jolly Overkill. Yes, I'm talking about Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, the TV special that's now become so much more. It's a stage play and musical played here in San Antonio at one of the most prestigious places, the Tobin Center here in town. Why don't you just watch the special? Why do you have to go watch it in a two-hour version of something that was only 40 minutes long in the first place, but now it's such a cherished thing in the minds of everyone that... They have to extend the brand to anything they can. The other day I saw Rudolph, you know, Band-Aids. I'm sorry, but I don't want to bandage myself with the Yukon Cornelius. And Bumble. What the heck with Bumble? Bumble's everywhere. I mean, I have to admit I have the two-foot-tall Bumble in my studio. I I love the Bumble. He's fun. He's very King Kong-esque, which Rankin-Bass would go on to create an animated version with Toho a few years later. But they're taking all the fun out of the Rudolph special for me with all these one-offs. And and there's a horrible Island of Misfit Toys sequel that you should never see. However, there is a really good Rudolph 
and uh, Frosty Christmas in July sequel that came later, where you then see Frosty the Snowman in stop motion as opposed to 2D animation, and it's quite fantastic. So they did do a good sequel, but I'm sorry. Burl Ives must be rolling over in his grave. I'm sorry, fellas, but I'm just Rudolphed out. Every moment that they're concentrating on Rudolph means that that's a moment they're not doing something with that stupid Olaf and Frozen. I support it for that reason only. Nothing against Olaf or Frozen. So more Rudolph, the better, as far as I'm concerned. Let it flow, Jim. I was going to be ended on such cheer. Now you've pissed me off, not you. The new Pixar film. You didn't like it? No, no. It's that they put, instead of doing a Pixar short, this year Disney has put a Frozen mini movie in front of it instead of what we've gotten for 20 some years which is a new pixar short that's whimsical that's beautiful that's carefully crafted and instead they gave us a frozen commercial basically this year and i hear it's horrible by the way that's not what you're supposed to get it's not a pixar put rudolph out there we need more gay icons anyway so let's get him out there wait he's not gay i thought herbie was gay. gay he's a bear are you serious not a bear He's a lumberjack. Totally, I'm talking bear in a different oh, 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 way. Oh, sorry, sorry. I wasn't thinking in gay terms. I was thinking of a real bear. Like a big, lovable gay bear. I'm just a misfit. Okay, sorry. I had a Herbie moment there for a second. That brings us to the ho 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 day ending. We want to thank you all for tuning in these last few months. And I'd like to give the guys a chance to say... Merry Christmas to our fans and friends out there, and even even our haters and detractors. Well, I want to say Merry Christmas to the fans, but also to you guys. I'm a bit of a humbug type during Christmas in general. I don't know why. Maybe it's the Halloween side of me. It fights it. But at the same time, I have a soft spot for it. And I do want you to know that I really enjoy doing this with you guys. We all get each other. We get weird, and it doesn't bother any of us. It's fantastic. I look forward to these. I look forward to hanging out with you guys. It's a great time for me. I'm thankful that we're all doing this together. My psychoanalyst thanks you because he's buying a new car with all the money I'm having to use on issues. And they're not all comic book based. So, <laughs> And Jim, I know you said a few things a minute ago, but Merry Christmas to my fellow historians, my friends, everybody in the Comic Book Historians Facebook group. It is like a second home to me. And I certainly love Alex that you gave me that playground to play in. Thank you. Oh, well, thanks, man. I love watching you have a great time with that. You're a natural at it. It's been fantastic. And I want to tell all of you out there, thank you for the kind things you've been telling us bi-weekly whenever we get this out there. Thank you for listening to our Tom Orzachowski special last week. And thank you for just getting us, just like we get each other. You guys must get us too because we're getting hundreds of people following the podcast now as opposed to one or two that we had for the first couple. And so somebody must be liking us, guys. Since my last name is Field, like Sally Field, I feel like I have to say, you like us. You really like us. We wish you all a wonderful Hanukkah, which has already passed, and a wonderful Christmas. And we will see you next year in the Comic Book Historian podcast. I'm Bill Field for Alex and Jim. Have a great one.